Welcome to the Forbidden Forest. This is Ro reading chapter 61 of the Blood Magic series, The Forest, again. November 1st, 2009. The dust that had once covered the entirety of Grimald Place was no more, and Harry felt nothing between his hands and the ancient magic of the wizarding home, a slow and gentle thrum. Centuries of spells, decadently laid across floorboards and ornate paneling, along the molding and every brick of the hearth. He let his fingers slide along the banister wood, dark with the oils of many transient touches. He could hear Hestia's voice from the meeting room, and he climbed the rest of the stairs, a newly steeped mug of tea steaming in his right hand, his left drifting across the dark, polished lines of oak. It warmed almost imperceptibly beneath his touch, gentle and reassuring, grateful and at peace. Harry had joined Hestia, Dennis, Luna, and Greg to discuss the recent spate of lurkers in the square outside. Trench coats and long brims of their hats wide, pulled low over stoic, unremarkable faces. Lurkers who had gone so far as to question Joaquin and Alethia about the house one blustery afternoon, crisp, dried leaves and detritus swirling about their feet. They had been all smiles, feigned curiosity, thinly veiled over deeply malicious intensity. It was as if the ghosts of the Death Eaters Harry had once spied from the same cobwebbed windows had returned to haunt the square. These new specters of malcontent also sanctioned and sent by the Ministry of Magic. Unspeakables, Hestia had said, a dark look settling across her regal features, a ring of holly, complete with tiny red berries encircling her. She had pushed her long braids over her shoulder, crossed her arms and glared, her magic rumbling its discontent, its anger. Not unspeakables, unknowables, replied Luna's soft voice, tired and waning as she spoke. A yawn had stretched the corners of her mouth as she lay back against Greg's shoulder, his arms snug around her. She was dressed in flowing robes of periwinkle blue, soft and delicate and edged in silver embroidery. She looked as though she was made of nothing but the moonlight itself, long pale hair and a thick braid, her hands crescent around her belly, round as the waxing moon. Luna, in her way, though much subdued and even slower than normal, had explained that the Department of Mysteries swallowed up those who dug deeply into the esoteric and mystical world of magic, who were effectively erased from their lives, nameless wizards and witches, unknown to any, no histories and no names, seekers of power, drawn to it, inexorably. It was the unknowables who had collected the artifacts that peppered the rooms behind the doors, the unknowables who had taken the veil, had lifted it onto the plinth, sealed away from the earth where it had first been formed, tattered cloth once free to blow in the gentle winds of the waking world, on sacred ground where knowledge seeped between the two worlds. It was the unknowables who had harvested the brains, had first unlocked time, the unknowables who had captured space and who had hunted love, pure and effortlessly true, the most powerful trophy of them all. Power, in all its forms, they craved it. They traded their lives, their identities, their histories, and they circled around their treasures like fervid, starving magpies, forever hungry for more, 
forever hunting, collecting. In the days before, Harry would have smiled and taken Luna's words with a hefty grain of salt, laughing away the Rotfang conspiracy with the Nargles and the other such hiccuping stories of magical oddity and infamy, impossible and incomprehensible all at once, stories that would have delighted a child, yet left all of the adults bored and irritable, as if Luna's world of possibility was a burden, not a gift, a distraction, not an insight. But that was the days before, a land where hallows were children's stories and life was simple and the ministry was just a cumbersome bureaucracy like any other, before magic had crawled around life and death, around love and sacrifice, before grims and death herders and thestrals and their milky glass eyes and knowing stares, before ghosts parted the veil to whisper through dreams, before magic he had never known had poured out of Harry, had threaded its way through his skin and bones, had anointed him, reclaimed him, made a home in him. At first, Luna continued, her hands slowly and rhythmically tracing paths along the swell of her stomach, the unspeakables were interested in Draco's research because of its great application in the wizarding world, because it could explain some of the more mysterious aspects of magic and medicine alike, because it was new and exciting, previously unattained. The room had gone quiet, everyone listening, Dennis in his leather chair by the fire, legs crossed and chin resting on his palm, fingers tapping absently on one softly stubbled cheek. Hestia's hands were clasped in her lap, her long black nails tight against her sable skin. It seems, however, that the two of you together have aroused the interest of the unknowables. Now they are interested in not what you can do, but you, yourself, your flesh, your power. From here they will likely hunt you, trap you. I fear this is what Hermione was alluding to all those weeks ago when she mentioned the risk of disappearing. They will try to collect you and all of the power that you both hold. It was then that Harry had stood, her words still settling in the air of the meeting room, finding space amongst all the other secrets and fears of other stories shared before. He had taken the opportunity to head to the kitchen for a cup of tea, mint with honey. The tiny silver spoon clinked against the ceramic, so loud in the quiet of the empty kitchen, only populated by himself and his thoughts. As he climbed the stairs back to the room, he could hear the whispered voices, shuffled conversation, and another of Luna's yawns. Hestia was standing in the hall, watching the window over the square outside, scowling, hand resting on her hip, her eyes pointedly narrowed, the holly leaves shining in the flickering light of the old oil lamps. Her mouth was just open, as if about to fog the chilled pane with murmured words. It was in that muffled quiet that a shrill and violent scream rent the air, quick and sharp and harrowing, punctuated with the sharp rise and fall of wings, large, leathery, bat-like wings and thudding hooves, and Flea was disappearing around one of the many dark hallways of Grimald Place, his long tail snaking around the corner into the realm of inky darkness beyond. Harry froze, letting an icy wave of dread ripple through him, rolling across his skin, his mug falling from his hand and the boiling tea spilling out across the stairs. Harry looked up to catch Hestia as she turned to look at him, marking the end of her watchful vigil at the window, 
her amber eyes bright and fierce in the flickering light. She shone with a resilient, unfettered determination. They're coming, Harry. A pop sounded behind Harry in the foyer just before the ancient door, keeper and guard of the House of Black, followed by a stuttered, forceful inhale, and Harry felt his magic fret and keen with fear, felt his heart beat an unsteady rhythm in his chest. He turned, adrenaline running rivulets down his limbs, across his chest. His thoughts faded, faded into nothing, into frozen, empty nothingness. Draco. He turned, as if in molasses, as if the world had been plunged into deep, icy water and everything made still with the cold and the dread and the weight of the depths on all sides. Before him, Draco stood, one hand outstretched, as if to catch himself, to touch the wall and regain his footing, as he was standing with feet at odd angles, inappropriately wide. His other hand was at his neck, pulling at the collar of his robes, holding them away from his throat. His throat. It was pulling in air. Harry could see his Adam's apple drawing down with each forceful, ragged breath. He could see Draco's shoulders hunching up, working to move air in. Everything in slow motion, silent, as if the two of them, the two of them were drowning. Harry, go! In a rush, sound came back to Harry's world, Hestia's voice cracking the stillness, the silence. Sound and time fell back together, and Draco was coughing and spluttering and clawing at his neck, and Harry was flying down the stairs, running to him, arms outstretched, a fire kindling in him, burning and roaring, and his magic surging out of him, desperate and enraged, spiraling. And Harry caught Draco as the other man fell, the two of them spinning out of existence and away, away to where it's safe, away home. Snow was falling softly in the clearing. The sky was dark and muted with clouds, the stars and moon hidden from view. Panting breaths released clouds of steam into the otherwise silent forest, muffled and dampened with layers of snow. The two men were both kneeling, the snow molding to their collapsed forms. Harry still had his arms outstretched, one firmly fastened around the forearm of Draco, the other lifted gingerly into the openness of the night sky, a point of focus, a calling forward of magic of charms, of spell work, tried and true. His eyes were closed, and he held himself still with fragile focus. He was chanting, words soft and disheveled at first, the magic flighty and fickle, salvia hexia, cave animicum, protego totalum. As he spoke, the familiarity of the chant took hold. Deep within his heaving chest, it poured from him, like muscle memory. This is how you protect the ones you love. Salvia hexia, cave animicum, protego totalum. This is how you keep them safe, how you layer them in your love, in your courage, in your sacrifice. This is how you protect the ones you love. Salvia hexia, cave animicum, protego totalum. And Harry's voice grew with each repetition until it rang out into the once silent field, no longer soft and muted, but the sound of his chanting carrying cold and clear into the night. It was weaving deep in the valleys of the south and around the slopes of the mountains that rose into the northern sky. From the caverns and the caves of the east, the peaks and the rugged outcroppings that lay beyond the rowan grove to the west, he chanted and his magic threaded deep into the earth, wound around the roots of ancient trees soaked into the fissures in the granite, found a home in the polished stones of the riverbeds and the very soil beneath them. 
and it all entwined with his magic, bright and golden and true. It was only after he had ensured the safety of their hollow, their forest home, that he opened his eyes. His lips still moved, the spells still flowing from him, but his voice was soft now, gentle, soft, gentle and safe. Draco knelt before him, his breath still coming in big, heaving gasps. His eyes were wide, his hands shaking. Fear had consumed him, ravaged him, and Harry, who had been so focused on his own magic, sending it out across the stretches of wilderness around them, hectares of unkempt bramble and twisted, gnarled trees. Now he found himself making his world small, small enough to consist of just himself and Draco, kneeling together, breathing out into the frigid air, their bodies haphazardly thrown together, together in the snow. He brought his arm down to catch Draco's hand, still pulling at the collar by his throat, and lessened his powerful grip on Draco's other arm, settling both of his hands in a gentle hold across the inside of his forearms. His lips never stopped forming the words of his charms, but now he let the warmth radiating from his hands coast along Draco's skin. He let his hands, his rugged and warm palms, rest flat against the pale and delicate stretches of Draco's limbs, tremulous with fear and fatigue. As if a reflex, Draco wrapped his trembling fingers around Harry's forearms in return. Salvio hexia, cave inimicum, protego totalum. Harry spoke each spell softly and carefully, and eventually Draco lifted his gaze to Harry's. Panicked breath still full of fitful, quivering vibrato, his lips looking cracked with all the rushing air, shallow and insufficient, ghostly and threadbare. His eyes were glassy and struggled to focus, flitting back and forth from Harry's face and the hands that lay so firmly and lovingly across his skin. Salvio hexia, cave inimicum, protego totalum. Harry was taking deep, slow breaths. He was focusing on radiating warmth and calm, on the repetition of these words, on the feeling of safety as much as the spell work, on letting the stillness of the hollow wash back over them, still and dark and safe. I'm okay. It was Draco who finally spoke into the space between them, their arms still linked, a reflected pose, each of them the strength of the other. You're okay, Harry responded, and his magic found Draco's, like the battered coast after a storm sent wave after wave from the great empty sea. Harry stood, lifting Draco to his feet with him, guiding him softly through the light, powdery snow, their footprints tracing a long-remembered path to the little stone cabin nestled against the hillside, Draco leaning on Harry as they went. The old wooden door opened easily at Harry's touch, as if they had just left that morning. The living roof, now covered in snow, was still sloped above the entrance, downy feathers poking out between errant sticks in the eaves, as if the nest of all of their avian neighbors hadn't been empty in the preceding months, as empty as the cabin, as untended as the garden beds, weeds thick and unruly beneath the growing winter. Harry conjured a fire in the hearth, and it roared to life, an instant balm to the cold and empty feel of the stone house, abandoned at the close of last year's snows. The light from the flames flickered around the walls, filling the cabin with a subdued glow, warm and homey, a golden heat. He slipped off his shoes and padded across the bare rug they had once laid out in the field under the stars, finding constellations in the dark, finding themselves, 
The memory seemed to scatter itself in the air like dust, newly disturbed, as Harry approached the bed. He let it wash over him, and he let it warm him as much as the fire. He stared down at the bed, the only unfamiliar thing, no longer a bunk bed, a transfiguration Draco had relied upon in those early days, when Harry was the one trembling, racked with withdrawals, when they had fought and bickered and sniped and eventually had reached a tenuous truce, when they had found common ground. A bunk that had allowed them to get close, closer, had allowed Harry to peer over the side and rescue Draco from a nightmare, the first of many. A nightmare that had opened the pages of Draco's history, an invitation to share in the horrors, in the fear, and the pain of the past. A bunk that had led to many more invitations, many more shared moments in the dark. A bunk that had given space for something beautiful and delicate to grow between them, something neither of them had trusted to be real, so accustomed were they to the cruelty of love, of vulnerability. Oh, how it had scarred them, both, and so they had run. Harry let the memories swallow him up for a moment, before reaching down and tracing his hand over the old and patchy quilt on the mattress of hay. A relic from the days when quintessence had first been published, and potions gurgled in cauldrons in plain air amongst the beds in the garden, he imagined. As he finished the sweeping gesture, the bed transformed into the same mountain of pillows, soft as satin sheets and thick feather-down duvet that simply sang of Draco, of the nest he built himself, of comfort, thick and plush and decadent. A groan from behind him, and Harry felt a smile flit across his face for the first time that evening. Draco was pulling off his shoes and socks and robes and shirt and trousers, soaked at the knees from the snow as he crossed the tiny room, throwing himself at the bed. He just barely managed to pull the thick layer of blanket back as he plunged into the veritable eyrie. Another muffled groan escaped him, and Harry sighed out a breath he hadn't realized he'd been holding. They were okay. They were going to be okay. Pulling his shirt over his head and slipping his own trousers down over his still knobby knees, Harry slipped into bed beside Draco, the fire crackling and popping as he slid his arms around him, his hands covetous as his own fear finally caught up to him. Draco had only just escaped, only just. Harry pulled Draco closer, folding himself around the other man, acres of their skin pressed together, his nose buried in the tousled gold of his hair. He smelled of black pepper and Queen Anne's lace and all the fear that was washing away with the sweat that had poured beneath his clothes. I'm okay, Harry, came Draco's muffled voice, thick with exhaustion. Draco was still running his still cold fingertips along the bones that stood out on the backs of Harry's possessive hands. I'm okay. But what if you hadn't been? And Harry let himself sink with the dread that had bubbled up out of him. The horror, the fear, the knowledge that he hadn't been there. He hadn't been able to protect Draco, hadn't been there to keep him safe. His hands curled in as he felt his nails catch across Draco's flesh, and he couldn't help how tightly he gripped him as the fear held him just so mercilessly. Shh, Harry, I'm okay. Draco was falling into sleep, and Harry let him. It was only once Draco's breaths were sleep even and his body slack in the warmth and the safety beneath the duvet that Harry let himself break, and the sobs overtook him. Far above, 
between thick clouds and the arcing dome of the night sky, two thestrals circled, nickering soft and grateful cries. Hours later, as the wind picked up and whistled around the frozen fields of the hollow, Harry awoke with a start. The fire had died down, lingering coals glowing red in the bed of ash, the cold seeping into the cracks and corners of the cabin. Harry rubbed the sleep from his swollen eyes, his mind prickling with the sense that something had wrenched him from sleep, something sinister. And then he heard it again, the slow musical howl of a wolf. Harry slipped out of his bed, careful not to wake Draco, who was curled around a pillow deep within the folds of sleep. He padded to the kitchen window, peering out into the night, the snow falling heavily now, thick and chaotic in the swirling winter winds. At the edge of the clearing, near the copse of blackthorn trees, he caught sight of a silvery figure. He watched the small wolf with its large and pointed ears tip its head back, nose to the sky, another carrying howl across the dark of the forest. At the sight of it, Harry felt his fear fade. There was something familiar, something comforting about the way the little wolf stood so graceful and resolute in the snow. It was not a timber wolf, not a wolf of the north, slight and small and with long and dainty legs, howl so much more like song. He walked to the door and pulled it ajar, the wind instantly spilling into the warmth of the cabin, Snowflakes whipped up from around their single step beyond the door and forming eddies into the air, around Harry's bare legs. Hestia's voice met him on the wind, tired but full of care and gentleness, just as he knew her. Everyone's safe. We've reinforced the wards at Grimald Place, and I took Neville, Juniper, and Alethea to help me secure the office in Hogsmeade, and we've got an excellent cover story for the ministry and the prophet both. Stay out of sight until we can meet. Keep safe, you and Draco. Let us do what we need to do here. We have a plan. With that, the little wolf took one last look at Harry before trotting off between the trees, the silvery light quick to fade in the dark and snowy world. As the sun rose, Harry was already running his morning circuit around the hollow, breaths coming hard from the months away, his body forgetting the demanding nature of the mountainside. He was panting as he jogged through the blackthorns and across the frozen stream to the rowan grove, his magic lingering and golden in the knots of the vike elm and the frozen banks of Alice's stream. He looped up to the foot of the mountains in the northwest before coming back along the ravine to the south, renewing his spells, his vows to the forest, his promise to keep this sacred place safe, just as it had kept them. As he ran, he let the tension of the night thrum and break with every footfall. When he finally emerged from the thick canopy of trees and into the open field of snow that covered the hollow, he stopped, hands on his hips, catching his breath. His lungs burned with the cold air, and the rising sun casting light across the snow and ice blinded him for a moment. Shielding his eyes from the glare, Harry caught a glimpse of Draco, standing on the stoop of the cabin, leaning back against the stone wall, a giant blanket draped around his shoulders, a steaming mug of tea between both his hands. His cheeks were pink in the cold, but his posture was relaxed. Harry smiled up at him and was greeted with the smallest twitch of the corner of his mouth in return. I want to stay here, Draco said, watching Harry approach. 
his shoes crunching in the snow that had since been coated with a thick layer of crusted ice. This is where we belong, Harry. Harry stopped, relief surging around him. He leaned against the wigan tree they had planted together, now tall and strong, even in the face of the cold, ice frozen on the tips of its branches, waiting for new leaves to finally find their way to unfurl in the spring. He was relieved to hear these words from Draco's mouth. He thought that they would argue. He had thought that Draco would cling to the idea that he would make it work living in Hogsmeade, that he could still be immersed in his life amongst the everyday magical world, that he could be safe. But it was, he remembered, Draco who had said he didn't want to stay normal. Draco who was so eager to be chosen, to be special, to throw himself into this life, a place where he could do good, bring hope and happiness, a life so entrenched in their forest home. We'll stay, Harry said, smiling, pushing off the tree and walking the last few steps to Draco, climbing the one single step onto the stoop with him. This is home. And Harry leaned in, kissing his pink cheek, the steam of his tea, ginger, Harry guessed by the smell, rising around both of them, lingering. Above the stoop, in the old nest that was just visible beneath the snow, were two ptarmigans, resplendent in winter plumage, chirtling softly to one another. November 5th, 2009. Harry stood with his back against the frozen granite, Sheets of ice scattered about the stone faces. Snow was only visible in cracks and crevices where the wind hadn't swept it away and down into the forest below. His hands were deep in the pocket of Sirius's jacket, and he had swept his hair back into an untidy bun, the wind still able to flit at its errant tendrils. He leaned against the rock with one foot up behind him, his knee peeking out from a hole in his now tattered jeans. His eyes were closed, face tipped up to the weakest winter sun, the light brittle and pale against the mountaintop. His magic kept him from freezing, but only just. He wanted to feel the winter, the bite and the chill, the power of the cold. It had been long since he had come here, had climbed the mountain and sprawled out in the sun, watching the Thestrals dive and cavort among the soft clouds of a summer sky. The horizon was empty of the dark beasts, and only fleas stood beside him, milky glass eyes surveying the vast expanse of forest in the distance, jutting out from their cliffside perch. In Harry's pocket, he ran his thumb along a circlet of birch wood he had carved that morning. The wood had made itself empty and plain, and the soft grain felt almost needy for magic, for purpose. Just like me, Harry said, opening his eyes and smiling fondly at Flea, who had snorted at the words. Harry reached up and ran his hand beneath the ratty mane that covered Flea's bony neck, his fingers sliding around individual vertebrae and along the arching curve of the string of bones. Flea leaned into the touch, pressing his skeletal face into Harry's chest. It was a well-practiced move, and Harry reached up to rub beneath his forelock without thinking, soft leathery skin against his roughened hands. Think I'm ready for whatever's next, Flea. I think we're ready, me and Draco. Harry said it softly, looking south. He could just barely make out the outline of Hogwarts Castle turrets in the distance. Flea shoved Harry gently and snorted again. Harry laughed and pushed him back. 
The great beast unfurled his wings and made as if to nip playfully at Harry's shoulder, which he dodged easily, still laughing at the beast's antics. Are you bored up here with me, sitting around agonizing about choices? Harry goaded the giant Thestral, who was in the throes of a full body shake, as if he was throwing off the layer of indecision and inactivity that had plagued the last few weeks, months, years, maybe. Flea nickered softly, ruffling just the tips of his wings, as if so eager to fly. His glassy eyes still hadn't left Harry. Oh, all right, you incorrigible bastard. Come on, let's go. Harry pushed himself off from the rock and stretched his arms over his shoulders, a playful smirk on his face. Try and catch me early this time. Harry looked out to the south again a moment, the sheer cliff of the ledge dropping over a thousand meters to the next granite outcropping. He took a deep breath, steadying himself, ensuring his boots were firmly planted against solid rock, curling his hands into fists. And then he took off, running straight at the ledge, leaping into the air with a whoop, the air leaving his lungs, and he seemed to hang a moment, suspended, before gravity took hold and he plummeted toward the earth below, as if in a graceful dive, arms outstretched before him. Above the rushing of the air against frozen ears, Harry could hear the wing beats behind him, could sense the dark shadow that fell between him and that brittle sun as Flea leapt from the ledge behind him, the giant beast swooping beneath him, then past him, coasting just beneath his outstretched hands as he fell, Harry's fingertips twisting into that ratty mane, gripping tight as the beast pulled them both from freefall, Harry's knees sliding into place along Flea's bony ribs, the two of them gliding out across the trees. Harry's whooping and laughter rang out in the cold, clear air. In the highlands to the west, Harry could just hear a golden eagle call. Harry returned to the hollow to find Draco knitting by the fire, a half-finished letter on the table beside him. He was counting stitches, knitting needles between his teeth, brow furrowed in concentration. Harry knew better than to interrupt him and set about making tea his face still burning from the rushing cold of the wind and feeling all the lighter and more carefree for it. Oh, Helena's left tit, I've missed a stitch. There was a clattering sound as Draco threw what had looked like the beginnings of a tiny sock onto the table, heaving himself to his feet. He was wearing that maroon top that Harry loved so much and his blonde hair was sticking up at odd angles in the back. Harry didn't say anything but smiled into his freshly steeping mug of mint tea the chip radiantly familiar in the lip by the handle. He reached for the mug that he had prepared Draco and passed it to him silently, watching Draco sniff at it, obviously still peppered at the audacity of his own knitting. Harry took a sip, still watching Draco. The last few days they had slipped back into their forest routine, deftly avoiding the subject of the Ministry's attempt to intervene in their lives, Draco picking up his old crafts as if nothing had changed. Harry hadn't questioned him on what happened too intently, as he could still see how rattled it made him, but Draco had told him it was the talisman that Harry had carved that had saved him, and Harry had felt himself unclenched just a little at hearing it. You've decided then? Harry looked up at Draco's words, the other man surveying him shrewdly. His eyes were narrowed and the mug of tea was suspended halfway to his lips, steaming and giving nothing away. Decided what? Harry raised an eyebrow, sipping at his own scalding tea. It burnt his tongue and he quickly set it back down on the counter, silently cursing himself. That you're ready for what comes next. 
Draco tapped a finger against the rim of his mug, eyes finally leaving Harry and glancing down into his own tea. His voice was quieter, and Harry had no idea how Draco had known, but he was pleased that he could tell. At the same time, Harry realized Draco was ready, too. He was ready, and nervously knitting, and missing stitches. Are you trying to tell me you're ready to go to Hogsmeade? Harry had skipped all of the banter in between. It was like that now, between the two of them. Harry left his chip mug on the counter and gently guided Draco's own mug from his hands back down onto the unassuming slab of wood. The two men stood facing each other. Harry was drawing him in close, hands first on Draco's, then guiding up his arms and back down, soothing and soft. Draco sighed deeply, letting Harry's attentions wash over him. Hestia wants us to come to the practice, to move the research materials they didn't manage to steal, to pack up our things. She and Neville and someone named Juniper have been so kind to take care of all that cleaning for us. It sounds like they left quite a mess. Bubo tuber pus and porcupine quills all over. Together they let off quite an acrid steam, you know. Oh, and coupled with the quail eggs. Harry let him nervously ramble a bit, bringing a hand up to push the hair out of his face and smooth down the back where he had slept on it funny. He let a thumb drag across his cheek as he spoke, slow and soft and careful. Jacob was leaning against him now, melting into his chest, worries all tumbling out around them and falling away in the warmth of the cabin and the sureness of Harry's touch. My poor Bond's eyes, Draco sniffed, his head now tucked against Harry's shoulder. They're probably irreparably damaged. Harry huffed a laugh into Draco's hair. I'll wager that fig is as strong as ever. Probably took the chance to uproot the stinkwood once and for all. Take over a whole new pot. Harry could feel Draco smiling against his chest. Do you want me there? Harry asked softly. He had thought long and hard about it. His initial reaction, of course, was to never let Draco out of his sight ever again, to play guard dog obsessively until the day they both died of exhaustion. But upon further reflection, he had realized that that is a poor attempt at a happy life, and it was belittling. Draco was a powerful wizard in his own right. He was more than capable. Babysitting him would be infantilizing. Plus, letting his own obsessive neurosis run his life had not panned out well in the past. No. Draco pulled back a half-step and rubbed his face with both his hands. Hestia's going to help me with it all, and she said Juniper had been a huge help with things, too, so between the three of us, we should be just fine. Plus, it's not like you can shadow me every time I want to see clients. I know you'd prefer if I just became a complete hermit, but we agreed that three days a week at the practice is more than reasonable. I have my work and my patience, and you have your own life to live, too, Harry. Harry grunted, chewing the inside of his lip. He hadn't quite worked through all the worrying about Draco wanting to see patients there still, but Hestia had told Harry to trust her to make sure it's safe, and he did. He had to. Trust was a part of the process, an annoying and vulnerable part. When does she want you there, Harry said, watching Draco readjust the maroon sweater to cover his shoulders, distracted by the skin beneath them, by the way he had become so brave. Harry wondered if the sorting hat could take a peek inside their heads now, what it would say, where it would sort them. Tomorrow. Draco had picked his tea back up and was heading back to his knitting, 
Calmer now, reassured, ready to unravel a few lines and hunt down the errant stitch. Hmm, Harry said, returning to his own tea and thoughts. In bed that night, Harry dreamt of the great black dog. He was walking through the forest, footfalls deep in the soft, powdery snow, tracks of a pine marten snaking between the trees and the golden light filtering down from a rising sun. He heard the familiar panting. Off to his left, a shadowy figure loping between the dense copse of rowan trees. Harry walked on, his steps tracing a familiar path until he was emerging in his rowan grove, quiet and still in the morning snow. Across from him, leaning against one of his favorite trees, was Sirius. He was young and jaunty and full of life, black hair long and effortless, smile crooked and genuine, broadening at the sight of Harry, running up his face and crinkling his eyes. Joy was painted all over him. Sirius laughed his big, barking, hearty laugh and pushed himself off the rowan tree, walking soundlessly through the snow to Harry, his hands running through his hair and pressed over his smiling cheeks as if they'd never been sallow. When he got to Harry, he pulled him into a hug, tight and furtive as they rocked back and forth together with the fierceness of it. Sirius smelled of oranges and dragonhide and wood smoke, and Harry could feel how real it was, the strength of him, the love. It was in the feel of his ratty shirt beneath his fingers and the scratch of his stubble against his cheek and the absolute warmth of him, no matter that they stood in the cold, snowy world of the forest. Sirius grabbed Harry's shoulders and leaned back to look at him, eyes still crinkling and smile still broad and beautiful and seemingly unceasing on his features, handsome and young and effortless, as Sirius was always meant to be. Gods, I'm so proud of you, Harry. I'm so proud. We all are. And Sirius's voice was rough, not with disuse, but with joy, bursting with it. Sirius ruffled Harry's unkempt hair affectionately, still positively beaming at him. I knew you'd make it, Harry. I knew you'd grow up and find your way. You chose to live. You've got so much love in you. Harry's eyes filled with tears, and the dream swam in and out of focus for a moment, the sound of his breathing and the feeling of a great weight being lifted off his chest, distracting him from the forest scene. He could hear a red deer calling in the distance, and a wolf howling, and it's as if the forest was full of the same joy that was so evident in Sirius. Keep Flea close, Harry. He'll guide you, and I'll come in dreams when you need me. I'm just across the veil. We all are. Even Snivellus is here. Sirius rolled his eyes and was laughing, as if he was full of nothing but the brilliant shine of sunlight reflecting off of the shimmering icy forest. Sirius was still holding his shoulders and looking at him, and Harry couldn't help the feeling that swelled around them of being loved, so very loved. Just one more thing before I go, Harry. Sirius was looking at him, his brown eyes deep and soulful and Harry could, for the first time, see both the love and loyalty of the dog and the haunted measure of the grim. Mooney wanted me to ask if you can check on Teddy, if you can. And Harry was awake before he could reply, his hands reflexively reaching out in the dark. Draco lay beside him, fast asleep. November 6th, 2009. 
By the time the sun finally agreed to rise, Harry had already made himself three cups of tea. He'd made Draco one as well, but it was so long ago that it had since gone frigid and was criminally oversteeped, and Harry knew that Draco would never deign to drink such swill, so he left it sitting beneath the window sill. The morning was cold, and the dying embers of the fire from the previous night were hardly keeping the floor just beyond the hearth warm. Harry dressed quickly and quietly, wrapping himself up in one of the maroon and gold scarves that Draco had knit him, refreshing the warming charms so that when Draco did eventually rise, he wouldn't be hypothermic just from getting dressed. He retied his hair up in a bun twice. Little Dipper, as it turned out, was not as picky as Draco, and Harry had just barely looked up in time to watch him happily clatter along the countertop to the unguarded mug, nibbling at the rim of Draco's cup curiously before attempting to stick his entire face into the cold tea. Harry's spellwork was just quick enough to catch the tumbling mug and save it from shattering. Dipper, Harry hissed in the half-light, and the owl flapped his wings, waggling his ear tufts as he hopped back away to the windowsill, completely unbothered by Harry's feeble attempt at a reprimand. Harry cleaned the spilled tea with a wave of his hand and set to boil the kettle yet again. You're too soft with him. He gets away with murder, that one. Draco's voice was still thick with sleep, and Harry couldn't help smiling to himself. He added a dash of lemon to the green tea as it steeped, just the way Draco liked it. I've made you tea. I'll be fine, Harry. What, for the first time this century you don't want tea in the morning? Harry thought himself funny, and he chuckled at his own joke. He already knew Draco wouldn't not accept his morning tea. It was how Harry ingratiated himself into Draco's good books each and every morning. No, you prat. I meant I'll be fine today in Hogsmeade. You don't have to worry so much. Harry could hear the smile in Draco's voice. He wondered when he'd become so transparent. Then he realized he'd always been this transparent. Harry scowled down at the nest of soft down and pillows, handing over the newly steaming mug of tea. Who says I'm worrying? Draco scoffed a laugh, not bothering to respond. He sipped the tea instead, cold hand wrapped around the warm pottery. Harry didn't tell him it was Teddy he'd woken up early worrying about. Harry had left Flea by the edge of the forest by the lake and walked the rest of the way up to the castle. Friday morning and the place was bustling with life. It felt warmer than their hollow, if not for the many lives that inhabited the place, bursting at the seams with magic. He jogged up the grand staircase, pausing to ask a Hufflepuff prefect where he could find the Hufflepuff first years, and was told they were just about to finish Defense Against the Dark Arts before lunch. The prefect, so eager and with a kind, round face, had even asked Harry if he needed directions— which had caused the old hag in the portrait behind them to cackle wildly, and Harry had only just excused himself up to the right corridor before she had given away his true identity. He heard the prefect gasp just as he rounded the corner and ducked into a hidden passage behind a landscape that would bring him out just by the defense classroom. Harry waited a moment while the hall ahead of him filled with students, little Hufflepuffs in their black robes with yellow ties chattering away. Harry could see Alpheus Doge's pointed hat far above the crowd of comparatively tiny students heading down to the Great Hall for lunch, apparently continuing his lecture on the use of green sparks and dueling as he went, his wheeze audible from down the hall. 
Harry paused in the doorway, watching the last few straggler students shoving books and parchment into haphazard bags. At the very back of the room, beneath a flush of light blue hair, big brown eyes looked up and saw Harry. Harry smiled and waited for the last two students to hurry by before walking up to Teddy. He looked a little more disheveled than the last time he'd seen him. His eyes were puffy, his shoelaces were untied, he had a smudge of dirt across one cheek. Hi, Teddy, Harry said, helping him gather some errant parchment and a quill that had rolled across the desk. When Harry leaned closer, he could see the smudge of dirt was hiding a bruise. Hi. His voice was smaller than Harry remembered. There was another scrape on his elbow. How have you been, Teddy? Harry's voice was soft. He agonized for a moment whether or not to tell him that his father was the one who had sent Harry. His father was the one checking in on him, just as his father had checked in on Harry in this very room all those years ago. I'm okay. He was looking down at his feet, scuffing one toe of his untied shoes against the floor. Are the other kids still being mean to you? Harry knelt down and lifted Teddy's chin, surveying the mark on his cheek critically. That doesn't look like a bruise from a pickup Quidditch match, Teddy. They pick on me because I'm small, and I'm not great at magic yet. They took my wand yesterday, and I had to fight one of them to get it back. Teddy looked angry for a moment, but it paled in comparison to the rage that flooded through Harry. Did you tell a teacher, Teddy? They were Gryffindors. Everyone thinks they're above that kind of thing. No one takes me seriously, Teddy said softly, eyeing Harry's red and gold scarf. Harry clenched his jaw. Teddy must have noticed how angry it made Harry to hear these stories, bullying and hurting kids just for their size, for their magical talent or lack thereof. It's okay, Harry. I'm learning to fend for myself, me and my friend, Thor. Harry took a deep breath and looked at his eager little face light up at the mention of his friend. He's in Slytherin and he gets it even worse than me. He's also an orphan, you know, and he's even littler. He's got such thick glasses and a lisp. Harry couldn't help but smile at Teddy's enthusiasm for his friend. Another orphan, another of the abandoned boys who ended up at Hogwarts. A Slytherin named Thor, no less. Harry straightened up and walked out to the front of the room, digging in the ancient desk drawers for anything he could use as a pretend wand. Teddy, he said, new enthusiasm in his voice as he finally found a bit of birch branch. I'm going to teach you something you could use to defend yourself. Get out your wand and stand just here across from me. Teddy did as he was told, and Harry turned to him, grinning. Okay, now repeat after me. Expelliarmus. It was 20 minutes later when the birch branch finally went flying across the room, and Teddy howled and whooped in excitement, his hair changing color to neon yellow as he did a victory lap around the room. I can't wait to show Thor, he positively shouted at Harry, who was chuckling to himself, leaning back against the desk. Harry, he's positively dreadful at spells. You should see him. Sometimes he tries to blame it on his asthma medication, but I think it's the anxiety. Teddy was nodding knowingly. You know, Teddy, when I was at Hogwarts, we had a club where we learned extra spells to keep safe, and it helped us make friends, friends we could count on if we needed help. Teddy stopped his victory lap, his hair changing back to bright blue, much brighter even than it was when Harry had first walked in. Really? That sounds like so much fun. You could start a club too, Teddy, if you wanted. 
Teddy stopped in the middle of the room, using his wand to absently scratch in his hair, contemplating what Harry had said. Will you come teach like you did today? I don't know enough magic to learn anything but Expelliarmus, really. It'd be much more fun with you there, and you could meet Thor. Harry opened his mouth to reply, thinking of course he couldn't. No, that wouldn't be possible. But before he could answer, a stern Scottish voice interrupted his thoughts. Of course he can, Mr. Lupin. I'll keep Tuesday evenings at seven o'clock free. You can use this classroom after dinner. Harry looked up, his mouth still hanging open, and Minerva McGonagall gave him an equally stern and knowing look, as if chastising him for even thinking of refusing. Her eyes were bright. Now, Mr. Lupin, Mr. Rowell has been looking for you. He forgot his inhaler in the greenhouses and is too scared to go look for it on his own. Please go and accompany him before he has another hypoxic event. Poppy still hasn't recovered properly from the last one. Oh no, his inhaler! Teddy grabbed his bag from the back of the room and hugged Harry quickly on his way out. Thank you, Harry. See you on Tuesday. He watched him go, completely dumbfounded. I'll expect you to keep your promise to that boy, Mr. Potter. Minerva was dabbing at her eyes with her tartan handkerchief. Otherwise, I'll be forced to inform the house elves to cease the unending supply of food at your forest hideaway. I expect you and Mr. Malfoy both to earn your keep. But, Professor, I, Harry stammered, unsure of how to begin. Honestly, Mr. Potter, it was amazing to me you never chose teaching. You've quite a gift for it. It's about time you stopped futzing around and followed your true calling. The children need you. I've got about seven who I'll be sending to your first DA meeting. That's what I assume you'll be calling it, isn't it? She sniffed. Dumbledore's army, still recruiting. Harry sighed deeply, smiling at her. How could he possibly refuse? And that's what he'd wanted in any case. A way to give back, to help prevent the spiral before it ever happened. She gave him a rare smile, tucking her handkerchief back beneath her robes. Seven, on Tuesday, Harry agreed, his mind already whirling with ideas for his first lesson. On returning to the hollow, Harry was bursting with ideas. Depulso, point me. What spell, what magic could he impart on the children McGonagall was going to handpick for him to teach? Would they know who he was? What he did in the war? Would he have to talk about the war? About who were the good guys and who were the bad guys? Would little Thor understand that his dad was a bad guy, but that didn't make Thor bad? Would the other children understand? What was it even like being eleven? He was full to bursting with thoughts, questions, ideas. Underneath it all, like currents of electricity, was excitement. He was thrilled, nervous, yes, terrified, really. It was so much responsibility and so unexpected. He had so much on his plate already. What with Grimald Place just taking off and the ever-present threat of the ministry and their cronies and now this, teaching? Was he ready? Harry ran from where Flea had landed, his feet quick along the half-melted snow of the meadow, little patches of earth visible where the sun had managed to warm the ground enough. Draco, he was yelling his name by the time he was halfway up the little sloping hillside. You won't believe what's happened. Harry was grinning from ear to ear. Happiness poured across him, bursting, radiant. It was then that Little Dipper swooped down, a soft hoop escaping him as he dropped a heavy letter in his outstretched hands. Harry stopped and looked down. Something about it. It felt heavy, cold. The happiness bled away. Dread began creeping its way up from the soles of his feet. 
winding slow tendrils along his calves and knees and the cold reaching his thighs. He felt rooted to the spot. Suddenly, so suddenly, it was hard to breathe. In the distance, he heard the cabin door open and Draco's voice was muffled, as if he was speaking through water, as if Harry were beyond thick glass, partitioned from the world, only existing here and now with this letter so heavy in his hands. He opened it carefully. Harry, we've lost one of our own. Sylvia is gone. This morning, come to Grimald Place. I need you. We all need you. Hestia. And Harry was on his knees, jeans soaking up the melted snow, soft and still and so cold in the mud, in the space where the sun had tried so hard to warm the earth. And he couldn't breathe. Of course he couldn't. How could he? They had lost one of their own. Gone. Just so. Sylvia. It was dark when the crack of apparition sounded again in Tenebris Hollow. Winter had returned, the cold retaking the earth as the sun moved to warm other distant lands. The melted snow had since refrozen into ice, sharp and unforgiving in the faint light of the stars, half hidden by clouds. Harry didn't look up at the sky, nor did he slip as he walked purposefully back to the cabin, hands balled into fists at his sides. His shoulders were high and tight beneath his cloak, the cloak he was already pulling off as he ducked beneath the sag of the roof just before the door. He welcomed the cold. The chill that hit his skin was near painful, stinging. It was distracting for a moment from his own searing pain. He waited, letting the cold whip the sweat from his skin. Draco was sitting in bed reading when Harry opened the door, wide and forceful, a shock of cold nipping at his heels. He didn't look up, but concentrated, really concentrated on closing the door without slamming it, on hanging up the cloak without shredding the soft fabric in his hands, on unlacing his boots, undoing his belt, every moment slow and deliberate and took all of his energy, all of his focus, because it had to. Because if he let himself drift for even a moment, he thought of her, laying there in bed, he thought of the slip of steel still hanging in her cold, cold skin. If he stopped focusing, he'd think of the peaceful look on her face, and that, that was what would take him, grip him, all of him, painful and sure and, oh, so convincing. But Sylvia in death was not nearly as painful as thinking of her in life. Her beautiful smile and the way she used to reach for Harry, the way her bangles accented every movement she made, Every wild movement, she was like music. She was a symphony, complex and moving, but thrumming with something so very human, so close to home, home. And now, now it was so, so quiet. No, he needed to be purposeful because if he wasn't, he'd think of Hestia. He'd think of the way Hestia cried, the way it broke her. To lose not just a battle, but the whole goddamn war. How every moment of the strongest woman he knew was marred with the pain of it all. How she had beat her fists against his chest and screamed and wailed. 
as if language would never contain her grief, as if sound itself, her throat pulling and vibrating and tearing at the air, would not, could not ever contain Hestia and her grief. How she had cried, a deluge, a summer storm, thunder and lightning and tears and freefall, as if all she wanted was the whole world to drown with her, drown in an ocean, a sea made for Sylvia, born with the love of Hestia. Bury it, he thought, bury it, swallow it down. His jaw was clenched tight, his back wire strung tight across bones that hungered, that pulled and keened and cinched tight, that held all of that tension, all of that desperate, purposeful, containing control. And it wasn't enough, because he could feel his hands shaking, and he could hear his teeth grinding, and he needed somewhere to put all of that, all of that anger. It was eating him up inside, and he couldn't hear because his ears had been filled with the rushing of his own blood, and his heart, fast and frantic and vengeful, wouldn't let him have a moment's peace, a moment's rest. When he turned back around to the room, Draco was standing, moving toward him, Draco's mouth was moving, and Harry thought he was saying his name. But he couldn't hear anything but buzzing, rushing, beating, buzzing. It was chaotic and so familiar, because he'd fallen into the swarm of bees, and they were running along his skin and reminding him of all the ways he could drown with Sylvia. Maybe he, too, could look peaceful in death. The thought scared him. Everything felt so out of control, Fear buzzed, too, now in his ears, and it was growing louder, and Harry was frantic to maintain his purposeful control. Frantic and angry, so angry. And he needed a place to bury it, and Draco was there. Harry reached out and pulled Draco toward him, his hands sliding familiarly along the tops of his thighs and around his ass, lifting him up, pinning him to the nearest wall. Draco hissed as he hit the cold stone, rough and uneven, and Harry pressed into him, pinning him with his hips. There was a moment of stillness as they breathed, Harry's blood surging through him, hot and uncomfortable, his eyes trained on Draco's mouth, pink and soft and just barely parted, wet from Draco nervously licking his lips. Harry wanted to ruin it, desperately. He wanted to ruin that beautiful, soft mouth more than he'd ever wanted anything ever before. So he pinned Draco with his hips, his cock painfully hard, digging into the soft flesh of Draco. And Draco tried to complain, but Harry was kissing him, kissing that perfect mouth, biting his lip plump and growling into his throat. Bury it, and it was all he could think. He pulled back a moment, eyes still trained on Draco's lips. He'd made them bruised and swollen, and the image ran through his veins like fire. He pulled back and palmed his cock, Draco just barely standing, his silken pajama top pulled skew from the rough rock behind him, a slip of pale skin of his belly on display. His palms were clutching at the stone behind him, as if that was what was keeping him upright. Harry undid his jeans, no longer deliberate and purposeful, but rough and desperate, his eyes not wavering from Draco, from Draco's bruised and swollen lips. He leaned his left hand by Draco's head, his ears still full of the sounds of rushing blood. He was panting. Draco, please. 
Draco slid the rest of the way to the floor, his hands reaching up to Harry's cock. They were infuriatingly gentle, soft, and Harry could think of nothing but how he needed more. More. He was growling, deep and guttural and angry, spilling out of him. He wanted to ruin all of Draco's softness. I want to fuck your mouth. Draco looked up at Harry, eyes wide and shining. They looked glazed, unfocused. Something in Harry broke. And the anger was gone, and the all-consuming lust was gone, and Harry felt so very cold and clammy. It was disgust, disgust running across his skin, and he shrank away from himself, falling and stumbling backwards, away from Draco, away from this horrible thing he's done, this horrible thing he had become. He moved away so fast and so completely he hit the opposite wall before crumpling to the floor, his cock soft, and he was incapable of understanding what to do with his hands because all he knew, all he knew was that he was a monster. And all of his demons were there in the room. And look what they had done to the man he loves. They stared at each other across the room, and Harry could feel himself going pale, and he was hyperventilating, and all of the buzzing was back, and it was eating him alive, and all of his demons were taking their pounds of flesh, and he could feel nothing but horror, complete horror. What had he done? Big, gulping, gasping breaths, and now he was crying, sobbing, sitting there on the floor, legs haphazard and pants still undone, hands white-knuckled on the floor beside him, and he couldn't look away from Draco. He couldn't look away because he loved him, and he hurt him. The two of them stared at each other from across the bearskin, the same one that Harry had dragged out into the summer field to watch the stars, and Harry couldn't breathe. He couldn't breathe because he was drowning. All of the grief and the horror was piling up around him and suffocating him, and even now, as he was clawing at his throat, he could not breathe. It's Draco who comes back to himself first. It was Draco who crawled across the rug to Harry, who shushed him and held him while he cried. It was Draco who forgave him. It takes four hours for Harry to tell him, to tell him everything, to let all of the pain and the heartbreak and the fear roll out into the room to let all of his anger soak into the stones. And through it all, through it all, Draco kept him afloat, and neither of them drowned. November 10th, 2009. Sylvia's funeral is the same day as Harry's first DA meeting. He spent the whole morning at Grimald Place, contained, safe, letting the grief take its turn, take its flesh. Felix was there. They cried together. They all did, the odd family that they had made, broken and feeble in the wake of a tragedy. Hestia delivered a beautiful eulogy, and Greg didn't stop crying through every word, and neither did Luna. And Harry didn't feel so alone in his grief after that. They put Sylvia in the ground, together, in a circle, as they all used to sit, vulnerable still, Dennis casting the first bit of earth that covered her, and Harry lending himself to the work of filling the grave, throwing shovelful after shovelful of near-black earth, rich and loamy, into the hole, filling it up, burying her, 
as he's buried so many others. He washed his muddied hands and apparated away to the gates of Hogwarts, making the long trek up to the castle in the growing dark of the evening, candlelights burning in the tower windows, ambient noise streaming from the great hall as he slipped into the castle entrance and made a dash for the defense room upstairs. He was early, so he moved the desk to one side. He wanted them all to sit in a circle, to get to know one another, to talk. His eyes were puffy and probably still red, but he didn't mind. Let them see, he thought. He knew what he was going to teach them this first lesson. The first meeting was going to be about the importance of friendship, of having people to lean on, to rely on, to reach out to when you're in the dark, when you're worried you're alone, when you can feel the dread come rushing down upon you, when you stop feeling like you can breathe. Because true defense against the dark arts is just that, bonds of friendship, love. It's the most powerful magic in the world, and it had saved Harry. It had saved him time and time again, and it will save him far into the future, because darkness isn't defeated alone. Darkness is drowned out by the circle of the light of many faces and the warmth of many beating hearts together. The opposite of addiction is connection, he thought to himself, sitting on the desk in front of the room, his heels of his trainers kicking idly at the old slab of wood. Connection. Teddy was the first to arrive. He was so excited, chatting away and zipping about the room, arms waving wildly, that Harry didn't have a chance to notice the boy who slipped in behind him. He was so small so very small and slight, and his glasses were so incredibly huge, propped up on his comically large ears, not hidden at all by bright blonde, nearly white hair. Harry noticed all of this only because the boy walked right up to Harry, stuck out his hand, and said, very matter-of-factly, with a very thick lisp, Hi, Mr. Harry, I'm Thor. I'm Teddy's best friend, and he taught me Expelliarmus, and I used it yesterday on a fifth year, and it was excellent. It really was excellent, Harry, Teddy shouted as he ran another lap around the room. Thor looked immensely pleased with himself, looking down at the Coke bottle glasses, wide magnified eyes, and the inhaler that had been spellotaped to one of the straps of his very muggle backpack, complete with a Batman symbol. He was distracted nearly at once by the next three children who entered the room, two girls in Ravenclaw blue and a boy in Gryffindor red, hanging back slightly. The two girls looked slightly older, perhaps second or third year, one blonde with a royal blue bow threaded throughout her long plait, the other dark-skinned like Harry, willowy and with a slightly haughty air. He was almost reminded of Pansy Parkinson, though he couldn't particularly pinpoint why. Perhaps it was the way she was scrunching up her nose. The blonde girl nodded in Harry's direction before wandering into the center of the room, surveying Teddy and Thor. The second girl introduced herself as Freya Rookwood, holding her hand out for Harry to shake. She flipped her chin indolently at the girl she had entered with. And that's really a pepper. She's mute. Freya rolled her eyes dramatically, and Harry took a moment to recover from the minefield of interpersonal hostility that colored the interaction. Recovering quickly, Harry greeted them both indicating that they could join Thor and Teddy in making a circle in the center of the room. They arranged themselves far from one another, avoiding eye contact, 
and Harry sighed softly to himself. McGonagall had sent him enemies. Enemies. Children from opposite sides of the war, indeed. None of the adolescent psychology books he had borrowed from Luna had prepared him for this. He rubbed his hands together nervously. The Gryffindor boy had watched this interaction, and once the girls moved off, he hadn't moved forward. In fact, he hadn't stopped staring at Harry, mouth agape, slightly in awe. He was a portly boy, all round edges, the theme perfectly accentuated by his bowl haircut, his black hair flat and a bit stringy. But, but you're Harry Potter. His voice was incredulous, bewildered. Harry nodded at him very solemnly. Yes, yes, that is true. I am Harry Potter. He let his mock serious face break into a wide smile. And you are? Edgar, Edgar Bones. He stumbled a bit as he came forward, holding out his hand at a near 90 degree angle. He couldn't stop looking Harry up and down and up and down and taking in every detail of him. Harry felt self-conscious for a moment about his rather tatty jeans and the Queen t-shirt he'd thrown on that morning, but he let his worries slide away. He wanted to be relaxed and comfortable. He wanted to be himself. No pretending he was the kind of person to don austere robes that so suited Minerva McGonagall or the sweeping, dramatic black cape of Severus Snape. No, he was allowed to wear muggle clothes. Muggle clothes that made him relaxed and happy, approachable. It's very nice to meet you, Edgar. Have a seat so long. We're only waiting for two more. Edgar Bones wobbled off to stand next to Thor, who was applying some kind of thick cream to his cheeks. Teddy was helping, though he was getting an awful lot on both of the boys' robes in his enthusiasm. It looked rather like green sunblock, thick and sticky, and Harry thought he caught a whiff of Bulbadoc's powder. Edgar was watching them both, his eyebrows creasing in the middle. What's that for? He got stung by dragon gnats in the greenhouse earlier and swelled up like a balloon. Madame Poffrey said he's allergic. He's got such a horrible rash afterward. The knotgrass we were harvesting was full of them, Teddy explained, waving the tube of cream wildly for emphasis. Oh, said Edgar. Madame Pomfrey says I'm medically complex, came Thor's muffled voice, Teddy busy coating his upper lip and nose of the thick green paste. Freya snorted a little laugh at this, and Harry had to stifle his own huff of amusement. There was something so incredibly endearing about the little Slytherin, though he could easily imagine he was putting the school nurse through her paces. Thor and Teddy had both tensed, Teddy quickly putting the tube of paste back into Thor's Batman backpack, resuming his spot in the circle with his head down, hair fading from blue to black. Thor hiccuped softly. Harry turned and greeted the last two students, two more Slytherins, a boy and a girl, the boy simultaneously sullen and sneering, and Harry instantly recognized the pettiness that consumed Draco in his moments of self-conscious ill-ease. The girl looked timid, unsure. They both surveyed the others, then looked at each other with knowing glances. The boy, whose thick curly hair had been pulled down into neat cornrows, muttered, I told you. Welcome, Harry interrupted. I'm Harry, and you two are? Aldora Runcorn, said the girl, her voice more nervous than her housemates. She looked up and down at Harry, much the same way Edgar had. She seemed to be waiting for Harry to hold her surname against her. I'm glad you've joined us, Aldora. Have a seat in a circle, and we'll start just now. I'm Winston Travers. He said his name imperiously, as if it should mean something intimidating. 
Harry could see the ghost of Draco's 11-year-old self reaching out for a handshake. Draco's pale blonde hair had been slicked back. Winston's braids produced a similar effect, his cheekbones just as high as Draco's, skin the color of honey. He shook Winston's hand and gazed down at him. It's nice to meet you, Winston Travers. Harry could tell already that he would have his hands full with this one. Lumos and Thor's wand tip ignited, flaring to life. There was a raucous bout of applause, cheering and a deafening whistle of triumph from Aurelia. Harry was laughing and clapping loudly with the rest, his heart soaring at the look on Thor's face, basking in the light of his wand, in the cheers of new companions. Harry had tried to tell them what friendship could do, what support and understanding would bring, how it would be the force against the dark, but this, this is what they really needed to see, what encouraging words and kindness could do to magic, how that alone could bring light when there was only once dark. Harry had thanked them all, promised to reconvene next week, and made his own way back down all the steps of the castle to the edge of the forest, to flee and the hollow beyond. Draco was waiting for him on the stoop with a cup of tea, the sun having set hours ago. Harry and Flea alighted in the clearing, and Harry jumped down, eager to recount his day, his victories, his triumphs. He had molded over on the flight back. He had lost Sylvia, but in the shadow of her loss, he had gained the start of something brilliant and luminous and immense, something he knew he could build, that would give him a place and a purpose, that would feed him, sustain him, sustain others, build others, build light against the dark, something that could start to heal the raw, open wounds of the war that lived on in the orphans it had left behind and the children who had grown up in the wake of fear and cruelty something where he could do good. And flying low over the expanse of dark green, other Thestrals from the Hogwarts herd occasionally swooping and diving by his side, playful and just as invigorated as he felt, he had realized something. He had realized that doing good, that warding off death, off pain and misery and despair, it wasn't in the huge heroics of his youth. It wasn't about self-sacrifice, not anymore cultivating life, saving lives. It was in the smallest of everyday moments. It was in kindness and care, in telling a child they were important, in letting them cry, in validating their dreams, comfort in the face of their fears, reminders of their importance, that they are loved and that love matters. Tiny, seemingly insignificant moments, everyday human moments, those were how Harry could save lives, could own his role as a death herder, as guardian against suffering, against fear, a way that he did not fight death, for that was not the point, and Dumbledore, for all his faults, had shown him that, at the very least. Death is a universal truth, but death did not always mean tragedy. For death wasn't the enemy, not like fear, an enemy that birthed hatred and lust for power, that cultivated the worst kinds of violence in the hearts of men. No, death was not an enemy, but a truth, still to be greeted as an old friend. A friend at the end of a long and winding road, a road that had made the traveler tired, a traveler who did not despair in rest, a traveler who had ventured far and wide and was content to let the future travel on, sure that those he loved would travel well 
and their path would be full of triumphs, yes, but that the obstacles they met would be challenges that the new traveler could handle, for they were well equipped, and they were not alone. And that was what Dumbledore's army really was, a way to ensure that they were well equipped, these children who had been left open to the insidious ways of fear. Harry was showing them that love, love can be the light that illuminates their way, that lets their path linger long in the winding forest of life. And it was with these thoughts that he dismounted and met Draco, who had set down his tea on the stoop and hurried forward, meeting him in the snow-covered meadow. Harry, Draco panted, and he looked bemused. What happened? What did you do? What do you mean? I've just come from our first DA meeting. It was amazing, Draco. I have to tell you everything. Little Thor, you won't believe what he managed. Oh, and Winston, Draco, he's you in miniature. Draco raised his hand to cut him off. No, Harry, your skin, what did you do to it? Harry stopped, looking down. My what? Draco grabbed his hands and pushed his cloak back from his shoulder, the chill inapparent on his skin. Draco was running his hands along his arms and pulling the neck of his t-shirt down to see his chest. And Harry saw what Draco had meant, all across his body, shimmering into existence, then fading away, were minuscule golden threads, designs, pouring over his skin in rippling waves, stark against the dark, brilliant in the night. Harry had seen them before, the same arching and swirling patterns, the same flickering golden lines, intricate and delicate and full of magic in their own right. It was the same designs that coated the Thestrals carved into the front door of Grimald Place. Thestral magic, death herder magic. And Harry knew that he had been right. He had found his place where he needed to be. I'm in charge. I have no thinking. So you don't want me to ask you about why the tea paragraph was so funny? (laughs) I had already forgotten about that. (laughs) It took you 20 minutes to read one sentence. sentence. The stupid sentence. Yeah. I I think I still laughed in the version that's in there. No, you did. (laughs) The one where Harry's like trying to be all nonchalant yeah. and sips his burning tea and scalds himself and then yeah. tries to play it off like yeah, nothing like, happened. Yeah, it's fine. What are you talking about? Fucking hilarious. Yeah, no, it's you. I've seen you do that multiple times. <laughs> yeah. That's like a, that's a core part of my personality. It might be all of my Yeah, personality. like if your entire personality was distilled into one action, one moment, that's, that's it. Yeah. As we got better at writing and better at writing these characters, mm-hmm. they got more us yeah. and more real and more yeah. Fucking hilarious. Yeah, like I almost got angry when you wrote the knitting thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Like nervously knitting and missing a stitch. God damn it! Throwing the knitting. I was like slightly insulted. (laughs) Yeah, and then like 20 minutes later, after you've dealt with that, going back, unraveling it, fixing it, and then just like knitting on like nothing had happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's me. I was like, wow, someone's observant. (laughs) (laughs) It's not hard to miss. Not hard to miss (laughs) at all. Mm. Mm. Mildly threatening to be in the same room as it. Just say. <laughs> Mildly threatening. Yeah, knows better not to interrupt. Yeah, <sighs> yeah I'm over here on yeah. the other side yeah, of the right. house. Like... Neurotically counting stitches. Like, don't interrupt me. <laughs> the fate of the world depends on this. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's super funny. That took me so long to read every single. Time I had to leave I the room and yeah. lay on the couch. No, but that was sight. also funny. Like, whatever, it's fine. Oh my god, that took so long to read. Yeah, these chapters got really intense. Can we talk about Harry as a teacher? I love is, Harry as a teacher. Yeah, it is my favorite headcanon. It's my, like, one of my favorite tropes in fan fiction. Mm. And I think it makes so much sense with his personality. Yeah, and I... <coughs> I find it so strange that JK didn't follow that sort of mm. thread. Mm-hmm. Because it's so obvious he's fantastic at the DA. Yeah. And he, he obviously has a talent for, like, inspiring other students and teaching them and, mm. you know, and and being such a good source of, like, he unites everyone mm. and he's such a leader and he has that, like, you know, you know, you want teachers to be able to be the person that people can come to yeah. and they feel comfortable with and safe with. And that's him. Yeah. That's really him. Definitely. And I, I really can't imagine him enjoying the oars. No, not at all. I feel like that's definitely, like, you know, a fever dream a 14-year-old has. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, cool, like, really badass, awesome. Look at everything that's happening with, like, the secret organization that my godfather is a part of, like, wanting to be, wanting to, like, do something actionable, like, in his life. But then once you're past that and you're, like, in, you know, post-war existence, I cannot imagine him being happy pursuing that. Well, that I think is sort of like a normal person's perspective. But I also think for him, there would have been this additional layer of social guilt. Yeah. That like, he's this person. He's the savior savior of the wizarding world. And he's just got to keep on doing that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a horrible sort of place to put him, especially Mm -hmm. when we can see like in book five, he's clearly got PTSD. Yeah. You know, like why would you continually push... Mm. that responsibility on this child. Totally. You know? Yeah. And it it always made me quite sad to think about it. Yeah. That the adults in his life kept, like, ushering him in that direction. Yeah, and then this idea that, like, he would leave Hogwarts forever when Hogwarts is his home, and he's like... Yeah. There's so much comfort there, and, like... Yeah. You know, obviously you you want him to grow into an adult and be, you know... Mm happy and stuff but I don't think he would have been unhappy to return to teach no I don't think so I think he would have been so happy to come back to Hogwarts and have like a relationship with the place yeah it kind of reminds me of that line (coughs) in book seven where it's Sirius and Remus who come back when he turns the resurrection stone Mm. and isn't the line like they seemed so happy in the scene of so many adolescent wanderings yeah that's kind of how I imagine how Harry would have felt about yeah. it. Like, that's a happy place for him. It's yeah. like a place of so much of the narrative of his life. Mm. And with so much meaning. And, and so defining of, like, who he is in a lot of ways. Yeah. I don't know. I just kind of imagine him as not being so separate from the school. Mm. And teaching is such a incredibly important profession. Yeah. Like I wanted, that's sort of why I talked about at the end, this moment he has with these kids Mm. who are obviously struggling 
for many different reasons. A lot of it being the legacy of the mm. war and, you know, the the stigma and the bullying. Yeah. And, you know, kids are miserable, awful things. And they make life horrible for other kids. Mm-hmm. And you can really interrupt someone's entire path in life by just being kind and showing them that it's okay and like you know just just being like this steady solid figure in someone's life you can completely change their experience of school or being a young person or being bullied and that can have a profound impact on where their life goes yeah or how they treat other people around them completely yeah you know i mean yeah, you you could have interrupted so many things. Mm. And I wanted to sort of give space for that, this idea that, like, he doesn't necessarily want to be in Grimald Place with people who are fresh out of, mm. um, like, rehab, sort of just yeah. relapsed or just, you know, coming away from using. He wants to be part of preventing that whole Cycle spiral. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the best way of doing that is being around young people and getting to not just teach, but, like, be a safe adult for yeah. young people, which I think is really valid and important. Absolutely. And we don't give teachers nearly enough credit or no salary. Yeah, I'm <laughs> like, <no> kidding. <laughs> Worship. <laughs> yeah, like, it, it, teachers are amazing. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. I, I also had some really, really good teachers yeah. who, like very much changed a lot of how I viewed the world. Yeah. That Fundamentally like so shaped powerful. how I engaged with the world actually. Yeah. You and I both actually yeah, had definitely. Very, very important teachers. And especially when you come from families where you can't rely on your parents and you oh, can't yeah. rely on your family. Like your teachers become <clears throat> such important like pillars in your life. No, totally. Because yeah. there is no one else. There's no one else. And like who else sees you every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I've got like a, there's like three teachers I can pinpoint where I'm like, it, each of them was like so like critical yeah. in my like young life. Yeah, I also have a teacher or two that I was profoundly disappointed in mm-hmm. because they yeah. didn't, like I, I tried to tell them something and yeah. like they dismissed it. Yeah. And like that had a huge impact on me growing yeah. up. So it can be either positive yeah, or Yeah, definitely. Negative. Definitely. Just like a huge amount of responsibility, like. Being around young people and yeah. mo- like role modeling and mm. providing space for them and validating them. It's like, it's amazing that teachers are able to manage that. Yeah. It's very daunting. Yeah, it is. So yeah, I wanted to sort of build that into the story that mm. like this could also be his force for good is yeah, teaching. Definitely. Well, and I love like right at the end too, when he's saying like, you know, you don't have to save the world by like these giant self-sacrificing, like yeah. heroic battle moments. Like yeah. you can just do it by these like very seemingly innocuous, like interactions, but just being, being kind. kind. Yeah. yeah. Just being nice. Yeah. I think we forget that like those everyday small moments can have, massive absolutely impacts on people Mm. just yeah yeah they really can they can like really tip the scales for sure Mm. and um i love thor (laughs) desperately yeah (laughs) like thor i want this to be my child child. like (laughs) shame yeah so we sort of headcanon that thorfinn rall and um Thor's mother 
die in the battle. Mm-hmm. And they have this young child who, I mean, Thorfinn Rahl is always described as this mm. massive, hulking, yeah. like, I think, like, Viking-style. Yeah. yeah, You know, its name is Thor. Yeah. Thor Thorfinn. Um, and, you know, I just sort of headcanon that his kid is just going to be, like, this tiny little... little thing yeah with asthma and an yeah. inhaler and coke bottle glasses so many allergies yeah so sensitive so just sensitive like, poor madame pomfrey it's just like this fucking kid yeah like <clears throat> yeah so I, I just sort of wanted to play with that idea mm. and, and write teddy a friend yeah exactly yeah and this idea that there are kids from opposite sides of this history yeah who can grow up as friends and yeah who you know some of them i think are would probably be struggling with the legacies. Like, you mm. know, I wrote uh, Runcorn's child and yeah. uh, Travers' yeah. child. And they, they're very obviously aware because mm. um, they look at Harry like, are you going to be rude to us yeah. now? Like, very expectant of it. Like, yeah. oh, no, Gryffindor. <laughs> but they're also a little bit older. So, like, they may yeah. have had more experiences like that. And Definitely. then Thor is, like, just an ickle firsty. Yeah. Doing his best to stay alive. <laughs> doing his best trying not to forget his inhaler. Yeah. <laughs> God, it's so precious. And then he's afraid of going to the greenhouse oh, to get it. Oh, God. Because of the gnats. <laughs> and of course, Teddy's like, oh, get it. Yeah. <laughs> he Teddy. needs his inhaler. Eternal sunshine. Yeah. Like, everybody needs a Hufflepuff. <laughs> yeah. Totally. He's like, as soon as you get to Hogwarts, everybody gets, like, assigned your Hufflepuff buddy. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> your emotional support Hufflepuff. Yeah. yeah totally. <laughs> Everyone needs that. Yeah. It's amazing. It's like, the house is, like... <laughs> Just a pillar in making sure everyone's mental health is okay. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, but I also wrote in that other Hufflepuffs are the ones bullying Teddy. Yeah. So, I mean... Well, kids are just inherently terrible kids are to horrible. each other. Yeah, they're horrible. Like, <laughs> they, oh, they just do that. It's really sad and depressing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, so going back to the beginning of this chapter, so they... <clears throat> We, it was like six hours ago. Yeah, like, <laughs> so Harry's at Grimal Place, and they they realize that the Ministry people are watching Grimal Place. Oh yeah, and the Luna, yeah, and Luna is like in her wonderful way of just like knowing shit that she writes in the Quibbler. It's just mm-hmm. like yeah, the unknowables, <laughs> and everyone's like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" And she's like, "Oh shame." Yeah. Oh, you don't know. <laughs> let me tell you. Story yeah. Time. Let me tell you this like conspiracy theory, and everyone was like, "Is this a conspiracy theory? Or is this fucking real?" Like, I know. What are you I like, talking about? I like how I wrote that because it's like almost as if you don't know if it's real. Yeah. Yeah. Because exactly. she could just be talking about she, whatever. Yeah. It could just be total bullshit. Yeah, or, they could just be unspeakables or ors. And yeah. Who we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. It's coming out of Luna. We have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> like, right? it could be real. I mean, yeah. the Deathly Hallows were real. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I love that. And and then Draco showing up mid like total panic attack mm-hmm. and um and then them leaving and he takes them to the forest. Yeah, we're back in the forest. It's magical. Yep. So we I love all of that imagery too, like of doing the protective spells and like kneeling in the snow and like oh my yeah. god. Take me to the forest. So <laughs> dramatic, yeah. but like, you know. It's us. Yeah, exactly. Must be dramatic. <laughs> Must be. Yeah. <clears throat> I remember we agonized so much about this idea of where they would start their life. Yeah. Like, together. Mm-hmm. And with all of the world building that we did, it didn't make sense for them to be anywhere but the forest. Yeah. And we really, we, we fought against the idea yeah. 
of them going back because we didn't want it to be like them like we said when we wrote this forest them isolated yeah. them away from mm-hmm. like reality them disconnected and hiding mm-hmm. from everything yeah so i think your next chapter really addresses how we integrate try, yeah trying to integrate that mm. Mm. yeah and then sort of like with this idea of me wanting harry to go back to teach yeah like, oh he could live in the forest yeah, that's exactly. not far from yeah. Hogwarts. and like draco can still work at his practice mm-hmm. and you know doesn't have to live at his practice anymore. Yeah. They can live in the forest and still engage in the outside world and they're not hiding and... and but actually there's no safe place for his research and materials yeah. except in the forest. Yeah, exactly. Which is no one's going to find. Yeah. Well, I mean, we settle that sort of yeah, in the yeah, next yeah. chapter. Yeah. And, uh, well, even with all of this protective enchantments, like, it's not just, like, the house either. Like, he's stretching yeah. that shit out, like, way everywhere. Yeah. You know, like, this is my fucking forest. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna pee on all of this. <laughs> Mark my territory. Yeah. Completely. <laughs> yeah. And, um, like, also the fact that, like, Hestia's uh, Patronus finds them. You yeah. You know, like, like are, already there's this idea that, like, they went home to the forest and like they're still connected to the outside world and i also love what we start building here too and that they don't have to solve this on their own yeah you know what i mean like this is happening to them that is such a hairy situation yeah like the the world is ending everyone is in danger and harry has to be the one to solve everything and he's alone and that except for obviously ron yeah 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 Yeah, exactly and like you know in in so many situations or in in fix or like there's this idea which i think is like very correctly explored where like he just goes off the radar and does things on his own to solve the problem Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean i think that's very much in his personality and us wanting to like build this idea that you know part of recovery and building like a healthy you know work-life balance or just like balance in general is like you have to rely on your friends yeah and it's okay to sit back yeah and let other people do things yeah and help you when and i want to help you also he has this moment of dual loyalty though mm-hmm. because draco's obviously so panicked yeah he needs to prioritize him being safe yeah and he can't do that and fight the people outside at yeah. the same time. And he has to, he makes the choice yeah. to take Draco to safety first. Yeah. And to not leave him there. Mm-hmm. Which I think is important. Mm. Yeah. And that's before he even gets reassurance from Hestia's Patronus. Yeah, definitely. And she's like, we got a fucking plan. Just stay there. <laughs> yeah. Please don't show up anytime soon. Yeah, exactly. Like, just chill. Yeah. And I really love that. Like, And I like that he can trust them. Yeah. Because that's also a part of exploring all of these issues is, you know, how do you feel about trusting your support system? Mm. If you can't trust your support system, is it a real support system? Yeah. Probably not. Yeah. Or you have, or you have to take, or issues. you have to take a seat and really yeah. think about why you don't trust them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> take a seat right over here. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I really. Yeah. I love that. And um. And then like Draco being like, yeah. So we're staying, right? Like we're never leaving again. I yeah, live here. I love that image of him being <laughs> yeah. on the stoop. Yeah. And just like in his with the tea. Mm, I'm never not, leaving. Yeah. I'm never leaving. Except we're to go to work, obviously. But yeah. I live here now. Yeah. Do not make me leave. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the nice bed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, that's me. <laughs> like to yeah. a fucking T. <laughs> totally. Um I really, really love that. And like 
So then he has the dream then about Sirius. Mm-hmm. And, like, I love that scene. It's so wonderful. Because it's also one of those things where it's like, you don't know if that's real or not. No, right? you like, have no idea. Is this a dream? Is he is... actually beyond the veil yeah. communicating with him? Or is this just Harry, like, self-soothing? Yeah, and, like, just, like, a wonderful dream that his mind is producing, yeah. you know? And maybe he was worried about Teddy. Yeah. And the fact that he hadn't seen him. Yeah. Maybe his subconscious was giving mm. him a little reminder. Or Remus is reaching out across yeah. the veil to be like, please look after my son. Yeah. I love it. Yep. <clears throat> and then... What else happens? Oh, and then they get the letter from... Sylvia. About Sylvia. Yeah. Ugh. There are so many things I feel like to unpack in that, like... Very short, very intense interaction. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have to unpack them? You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. (laughs) You have to write... No, you don't have to. But it's unrealistic to write about recovery. Mm -hmm. Especially, like, in this sense, Mm -hmm. drug addiction recovery. And not mention death. Yeah. And death of people in recovery. Because Mm -hmm. it is so common. Yeah. And it's horrible, mm. and it destroys everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, now you almost have to build that into how you build your recovery, like preparing almost. Yeah, and that's for the such inevitability a sad thought of it. because yeah. you think about which one of the people that I care about is going to die. Yeah, because statistically, it's mm-hmm. likely that someone will. Yeah, and I've had quite a few friends die, so mm-hmm. I felt like it's a disservice. To act like that doesn't happen. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's not like completely devastating mm. when it does. Yeah. And I sort of like, I didn't have a plan writing how I was going to write someone mm. dying. I didn't even know it was going to be Sylvia. Mm. Yeah, I remember you like toying with like, Dennis. who are we killing off? And, and me just, like, not being able to participate in the conversation. <laughs> I just kept leaving, being like, I don't know what horrible thing you're about to do, but I cannot help you. Yeah, I you thought know. about it being Dennis for mm. a while, but it just seemed really cruel. Mm. Plus, we had just worked so hard on doing something for him. Yeah. And then I thought about moving the meetings to Grimald Place. Mm. Those muggle attendees are then separated from yeah. them. And they're sent off in different places, yeah. and that's... So horrible and yeah. sad and isolating and imagine you've made such good connections with people and you yeah. miss them and you have like no way of contacting them. Yeah. It's so anonymous. So anonymous you can't find them yeah. again. And yeah. also when you think about muggles, mm. they all lived nearby Luna. Yeah. But Harry was or he was in London. Yeah. Or, you know, it could have been across the country. Yeah. It's not like a hop, skip, and a jump. Yeah, it's not like mm-hmm. you could easily reconnect that way. Yeah. So I thought about them being isolated and alone and... Them maybe not liking their new, like, support systems that they're working on. And... Yeah. So, and Sylvia also, who I wrote in the beginning of just being so angry. Yeah. Um, and being such a lovely person to Harry and, and being really real with him. Mm-hmm. Um... And I thought, like, yeah, that would be horrible. But it is horrible. It's horrible when anyone dies. So, of course, it's the person that you really like Mm. and care about. Yeah. So I wrote that, and I thought about 
what would happen. Mm. Like, what happens when that happens? You mm. go try and be with the people and support them while also trying to manage your own horrible feelings. Yeah, and not let that swallow you whole. But of course it does. It swallows mm. everyone whole. Mm. And so you're all just sort of miserable. And it's okay while you're with them mm. because it's easier to be with people who are feeling the same thing. Yeah. And then as soon as he goes back, mm. I imagine him just like trying to make himself so normal mm. and like trying really hard to be like, I'm going to be fine. Mm-hmm. I'll be, I'll be totally fine because I like, there's only two options. Mm-hmm. Either I'm totally not fine or I am totally fine. Yeah. There's no gray area. No. Yeah. No. So when I thought about writing it, I thought about what do people do when they're trying so hard to be fine? And they just get so angry mm. and everything. You just, you hate anything that's nice. Mm. And you hate everything that's good about the world because mm. the world is so horrible. Mm. So I thought about Draco and, you know, he's like sweet and kind. And Harry like has all these thoughts about how lovely he is normally. And how much it pisses him off. Yeah, and now how mm. angry it makes him that mm. he's just like so lovely and kind and he doesn't understand mm. what he's going through and he doesn't want to talk about it and he doesn't want to engage with the fact that this has happened. Mm. So he's just you putting all of this anger mm. into like this very violent... I mean, it's not that violent because he didn't hit him or anything, mm. but like the... It's very The rough. sentiment behind it yeah. is very violent. Mm. Um, interaction that he has. And then the like jarring reality of... Like, once it actually hits him. What he's doing. Mm. And who Draco is. And mm. what it means for Draco to be in that situation with him. Mm. And then he's just disgusted with himself. Mm. And that's a whole other layer of wonderful feelings to mm-hmm. work through. Yeah. But then I wrote it such that Draco is able to handle it. Mm. And does a very good job of it. Yeah. And eventually can support Harry through it. Mm. But I think we'll see sort of how the repercussions of that also mm. play out yeah because that's also the other thing is like those incidents you know when they happen like they usually don't really get like glossed over and then like, forgotten the next day no yeah no not at all mm. and i yeah well we'll talk about that i think yeah but i think that was like a very like intensely like real interaction yeah like very honest yeah, and I think I've mentioned before that like I'm one of those people who gets very angry. Mm. And I think anger, it makes things very ugly. Mm. But maybe not in the way that people are intending things to be ugly. It's just mm. the way that it like exists and comes out of a person. Mm. And this idea that like how dare things be so nice. And I actually wrote Sylvia saying those things. Mm. How dare... Her fiancé have peace. How yeah. dare he be at rest? How yeah. dare he? Like, this idea that you can be so angry yeah. at this, like, injustice. Yeah. Well, like, Harry even kind of, like, mirrors that. like Completely. Yeah. Because it's also very human. I mean, if you think about the stages of, of grief, mm. it's depression or denial, anger, bargaining, um, depression, and then acceptance. Mm. So anger is in there. Yeah. And I think some people exist with the stages at different places and... Different intensities. Exactly. Mm. And I think I just sort of resonate with a very angry mm. person. 
which I am. I exist in depression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, luckily I don't spend too much time in anything else, but anger I will definitely. Mm. And I think oh, this, is, this is something that we explore way more with the Wolfstar. I'm go- mm. going to explore way more with the Wolfstar. But like violence mm. is a place to unpack anger. Mm-hmm. But you can make choices about that violence mm-hmm. to make it less horrible for the people that you happen to be around. Mm. So it doesn't necessarily have to be violence enacted on someone in a horrible way that you have mm. to feel guilty about, but violence that is therapeutic. Mm-hmm. So like, how does violence exist is like a language that you can use to process. Yeah, things. is violence always bad? Well, I don't think so, but... Mm. I know I agree with you. <laughs> okay, well... <laughs> Anyway, that's still coming. <laughs> yeah. It's coming for us. <laughs> right? Still to be written. Oh, God. Um, and then something else I also really love. So this chapter, I mean, obviously we've been talking about death a lot mm-hmm. in like the concept of death in this um, story, but specifically in this chapter with Sylvia dying and then yeah. Harry getting to a place where he really accepts his role as a death herder. Yeah. And like really thinking about how like death in and of itself isn't the enemy here. It's not the bad thing. It is like yeah. a fundamental like part of existing. Well, it's an inescapable truth mm-hmm. and that all of us have to encounter and mm-hmm. contend with and we all have to contend with our own mortality mm-hmm. as well, that we too someday will die. Mm-hmm. Neither of us is immortal. I mean mm-hmm. or none of us are immortal. Um and God, I've spent so much time around death and the dying Mm. that I think inevitably you come to the realization that there are such things as good deaths and bad deaths. Yeah, definitely. Good deaths are not something that's so horrible when you see them. Mm. They're just something that you end up having to accept Mm. and be thankful for because a good death is, at the end of a good life, is what you can ask for. Mm. Um, And I kind of went talked a little bit about this idea that I see a good death when someone is too tired to keep on living Mm -hmm. and it comes in many forms and sometimes it's you know chronic illness or old age or even after something traumatic has happened Mm. there are, are sometimes a moment where people say, it's okay, I'm too tired to keep going. Mm. And then you know it's okay that they are at peace with the idea of death. Mm. Or their own death. And that death can be a respite. Yeah. Which is maybe a controversial stance, but I don't think I would be able to get through like my life being around many yeah. dying people if I didn't feel that way. Yeah. And then there are also horrible, horrible deaths, like mm. deaths when people are alone and scared. Mm. Those are terrible. Yeah. And there's no, like, there's no coming away from that with any sense that it's okay. Mm. Yeah, it's really awful. Yeah. I think that's something that we end up talking a lot about moving on from this too. Mm-hmm. That wolf star, that's the dumping ground. <laughs> well, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. But, like, again, like, death in and of itself isn't... Well, that's not... The thing yeah. that makes that horrible is the fact that they die. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the like, fact that yeah. they... No one who loves them is there. Mm-hmm. No one who can give them comfort is yeah. there. No one who yeah. can hold their memories and create a space for them to live on is there. Mm-hmm. They're not held or... Mm you know, guided into the next life with kindness. I mean, you, me, I can attempt to do that, mm. but I'm not the same as the people who love them. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. And, like, that idea that, like, fear in and of itself is what, like, creates so many problems. Yeah. It's actually not the fact that people die. It's the fact that people, the fact that people are so afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's a horrible thing for someone to be sitting in is fear all yeah. the time. Yeah. And it makes people act in ways that are not kind, yeah. not full of love. It just It's really fascinating actually because just hearing you say those few sentences, I could very easily replace death with birth and mm. have the exact same conversation. Yeah. You know, like there are good births and there are bad births and having fear creates horrible situations. Yeah. Yeah. You could where probably people act not in kindness. You could probably replace it with most anything. Mm. But, but like considering those two concepts are like very similar, yeah, though like people don't often same coin. <laughs> yeah, people don't often think of them mm. as very similar, but they are. Yeah. Yeah. A lot happens in this chapter. Yeah, I hope it comes off as sort of relatable. Well, like you're saying, like, death is an inescapable truth. If that's not relatable, I don't know what that <laughs> fucking is. Okay. Everyone is born and everyone dies. Like, <laughs> that is just something we all have to contend with. And all of us know people who die. Yeah. Actually. All exactly. of us encounter death. Others, the death of others before mm. we meet our own death. Mm. Yeah. Well, and some people, like, you know, have survived suicide attempts or... Overdoses. Suicidal ideation or overdoses mm. or... Near death experiences. Totally. Traumatic things. Yeah. I mean, that's some relatable shit. True. Mm. What it, else? Yeah, I don't know. I hope I just, like, it makes sense in, for people, the characters that we wrote, mm. the decisions that we made. Mm. There were so many people who were like, no, go back to the forest. You know, immediately after we left. Yeah, they were like, wait, backpedal. <laughs> yeah. So. I but hope- that's the other thing. Like, we, like you said, like, we really went back and forth on what we were going to do and where they were going to yeah. build their home. And, like, I, from when they left the forest, I, w- I was always like, I want them to go back, right? Like, yeah. I, I, but. I fought against it. Yeah, but I, I didn't want them to go back flippantly. Yeah. Like, we had to work through yeah. everything. Like, all of the reasons that made the forest unsustainable needed to be addressed before they could actually realistically go back. Yeah. Mm. Fuck, yeah. Like, it took so many words to do that. <laughs> this chapter alone was so many fucking words. I know. It was great. I enjoyed it. Was it. Yeah. And I'm really impressed because you wrote most of... Like, <laughs> at least half of this chapter was in present tense because that's, like, a weird magic trick that you do. And you still managed to read it in past tense, even though it was written in present. And I don't know how you did that. Because I would have thrown my phone and started crying and just gave up and been like, well, that's it. We're done with this podcast. Yeah, there's a couple thousand words in there that Mm -hmm. were in the wrong tense. And I just like went right through it in the past. I know. 
it would be really cool if I could just do that while I was writing it instead of mm-hmm. having to on the fly read mm-hmm. it in a different tense. I know. There have been times when you were writing when I was like, you're doing that thing where you're in the present tense and you were like, I can't stop! <laughs> just keep going. It's because okay, well. if I think about it in the past, it's a different vibe than if I think about it happening right now. That's super funny. Because I, I don't think I have that at all. I, whenever I, I write, I always, I always think in the past tense. No. If I'm thinking something intense and I'm thinking mm. about what is this person feeling right yeah. now. I'm writing it in the present tense. That's so funny. The first chapter yeah. of the Wolf Stars. I present. know. And I said, I was like, you realize this is in present tense. And you were like, yeah, but it's right now. And I like, I don't know what to do. Okay. I'm not going to change I it. I know. <laughs> I know you're not. I've like given up. It just means you have to go through afterwards. Like I have to put in all your commas. Yeah. You I'll just go through all and my change verbs. all of your tenses. It's fine. There's a lot in there. So, I really, I breezed so through. Just yeah. on the fly. That's why, like, sorry if anyone's listening and I sound like I'm a bit halting. Mm. It's because all of the verbs are different. <laughs> all of them. All Literally of them. all of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's really impressive. I'm sorry. Or you're trying, like, not to laugh saying the word arcing. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I think I was just cut full. Yeah. Or every time you say the word posh. <laughs> Posh. posh. Draco was posh. It's because we're thinking about the word possum. <laughs> yeah, because at one time I did yeah. say possum. Yeah, He's right. like, Draco's possum. <laughs> what? He isn't a possum? And then we had to stop recording for like 30 minutes because we could not stop laughing about possums. I think luckily, and then like imagining all of his scenes with him holding an angry possum <laughs> under his arm. Just like imagining the whole like story. Saying, yeah. like, like this entire story, Draco's got possums in his robes, but it's just not relevant like, to the story. In different coat yeah. pockets. <laughs> like, in the middle of the yeah. bed at night. Just, yeah. like, <laughs> just like rolled up half dead. Yeah. Like the bald tails yeah. just like sticking out of his pockets. Like, constantly fighting with Little Dipper. Like, yeah. It's just not relevant to the plot. So we just didn't like explain explicitly state that there are possums covering Everywhere. Draco just all the everywhere. time. <laughs> there's like 45 of them yeah. in the room at the Yeah, they just keep time. multiplying, so by mm-hmm. the end of it, there's like a hundred possums. <laughs> just... Harry hasn't noticed. You no, know, he hasn't fucking noticed. <laughs> he doesn't care. He's well, like, yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> What's this thing? <laughs> I mean, we still have the dragon chapter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Harry's too busy with dragon <laughs> thoughts to deal with all of the possums. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, I've only said posh twice. Thank God. Thank fucking God. Yeah. That's not both times word. though. You were like <laughs> <laughs> possums. Draco's poshest possums, draped about his shoulders, oh hissing into the night. <laughs> Feral and rabid. Does England even have possums? No. Is it just a North American thing? Yeah. That makes it even funnier. Yeah. Yeah, it does. <gasps> that's some good shit. That is some good shit. Yeah, that's really funny. So, yeah. Anything else? What else could I say about this whole... What fucking else could you say? Oh, 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 the death herder magic. The skin. I'm not explaining Ooh. that. I'm not explaining it. Ooh. <laughs> just, there is no reason other than I wanted to. Just, just like the I fucking only... dragons and the possums. Yes. Yes. I, I wanted. I wanted this. I wanted. <laughs> I like this. I like mm. gold filigree. Okay. Mm. Let me have my nice things. <laughs> Let me be decorated in 
It's like oh henna, but gold. It's like henna, but gold. And like glittery. Do you remember? Do you remember when you spent like two weeks like googling ways to get a gold tattoo? Yeah, because you, you were can't, like desperate. Gold for... is a heavy metal, and it will give you fucking heavy metal poison. I know. You kept yeah. complaining about that for like a solid two weeks, <laughs> and I was like, "I'm sorry, you can't have gold tattoos." And you were like. Eh. <laughs> so mad about it i'm still mad about I know. It. i'm not over it and i don't like you bringing it up like this it's very, never gonna be over it it's a very sore spot of mine <laughs> just keep putting gold things around the house yeah we've really grimald placed it up mm-hmm. it's a very that's specific a specific aesthetic, aesthetic. yeah <laughs> and it's our house yeah we live in. <laughs> anytime you see anything gold out in public you're like cool i'm stealing that yeah <laughs> Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Gold and black combo, and yeah, I'm like, yeah. yeah, it's mine. Yeah, hand that shit over. <laughs> I need that, thanks. <laughs> Quick, put it on the wall somewhere. <laughs> no, we need our elf heads. No. Let's just leave that out. I can't. I can't deal. Troll leg umbrella stand. I have seen an elephant leg umbrella stand. I don't stand. want that. <laughs> It's actually, no, it wasn't an umbrella stand. It was a poof. Like a little... Um, oh, like a, like a like an ottoman? Yes, an ottoman. Oh, but an elephant leg. Fascinating. Yeah, it was quite disgusting. Yeah, sounds like it. I don't know who would ever want that in their home. Oh, some Very... colonial general. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the British would like that. Yeah, no, the British do love that. <laughs> Glorious in the front foyer. <laughs> How it weathers in the sun. <laughs> so cracked and grey. Needing so much emollient. <laughs> no British Keep person them. uses emollient. <laughs> <laughs> they are just dry. Oh my God. That's just who they, they are. They too are cracked and weathered in the sun. <laughs> yes. So relatable. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Sorry. Well, now that we've sorry. upset all of our British listeners, <laughs> all three one of, of them you, there's one. one. <laughs> the, there's not even one. No, I don't think there's one. I it's fine. There's, one. there's no British people listening to this. Yeah, no. Okay, we're safe. Yeah. <laughs> don't the, tell the British. The Scottish people listening <laughs> yeah. to this are like, yeah, more, get it. <laughs> That's right, the fucking Brits. <laughs> Scraggly bastards. Scraggly bastards. <laughs> I am oh with the Scots God. on this one. Oh I, am, my God. I am comfortably on their side. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, probably comfortably like xenophobic on their behalf. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. against we the are a hundred percent Europhobic. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not worried about. I mean, you have very strong feelings about several. European, European countries. Groups. Yeah, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> it's because we live in Southern Africa. Yeah, it's because we live in Southern Africa and I am those European groups yeah, and I'm just like self-loathing. Same, I'm mostly British yeah. by heritage. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Well, not mostly, but yeah. there's a good chunk in there. There's, there's, a, there's a hefty helping of that <laughs> dry, cracked, weathered thing. I'll get you some emollient. <laughs> you, I'll make you bomb. You made me bomb the other day. You know, it took me like three hours to be like, oh, it's for my dry skin. <laughs> I, was like, I just like left a giant jar of it on your bedside table like, this is a gift. <laughs> you need yeah. it. So dry, so cracked. In the African sun. Oh, yes. My <laughs> British constitution couldn't possibly handle it. 
Oh, what shall I do? Oh my god. <laughs> Thank you, You're by welcome. the way. <laughs> that beeswax was from our own bees. <laughs> I know, right? So nice of them. We have bees, by the way. We have mm. honey now, too. Yeah. Thanks, you little bastards. Yeah, I got a liter and a half of honey today. That's not bad. That's not fucking bad. We'll go through it. Yeah. But it's not bad, no. And those are from hives we only set up like five months ago, too. That's not bad. Mm -hmm. We'll take it. I'll fucking take it. (laughs) We should have wrote beekeeping into the story. It would have been really interesting. No, I can't. Just too many bee illusions already. Yeah, no, there's too much. (laughs) Too much much bee imagery. (laughs) All of it very negative. (laughs) Well, (laughs) negative or neutral. Yeah, right? Maybe we should have written it, made it a little more positive. Jesus. No, I can't. I can't handle the beekeeping. That's yeah, too no. much. I'll just do that. You just... I'll bring you honey. <laughs> Make <Yeah>. you balm. <laughs> Thank you. For your skin. <laughs> for my dry, yeah. cracked, weathered constitution. Needs it's actually for my personality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My dry, cracked, This is for weathered, both of us. <laughs> my dry, cracked, and weathered personality that is just... <laughs> So curmudgeonous. Oh Abrasive. That's the Abrasive. word you use. There you go. Abrasive. Abrasive. <laughs> 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 let's, just, let's just lube this up. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Let's just lube it on up. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. That's enough of that. I find you very endearing. <laughs> I'm so glad because all every- of the sharp edges are great. <laughs> yeah. I'm here for it. Everyone else is like, ooh, abrasive. Mm, <laughs> <laughs> exfoliating. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. All right, cool. Are we done talking about shit? I think so. And yeah, I guess we'll just on to the next one. Not today. No, no, it's bedtime. What are you, nuts? <laughs> no, I can't, Get out of here. I can't handle it. I can't read the word posh again. And then <laughs> that happens multiple times in the next chapter. Is it really? Yeah, and I, I cannot think about possums. <laughs> so I gotta go. Whenever you're reading that chapter, know that I'm thinking about possums the whole way <laughs> I through. I know. And I'm going to have to read it by myself, like, in the bathroom, hiding from you. <laughs> like, and all of the listeners will be, too. Yeah, every time you hear the word posh. Poshest possums. possums. <laughs> Draped in them. Draped in the poshest possums. <laughs> <laughs> Hissing, snarling possums. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Way funnier. <laughs> Decided what? <laughs> Decided. <laughs> this is just such a me thing yeah, to do. This whole conver- I think we've had this conversation. <laughs> Decided what? Harry raised an eyebrow, sipping at his own scalding tea. It burnt his tongue, and he quickly set it back down on the counter, silently. <laughs> I literally can't do it. It's such an innocuous sentence. <laughs>
I can't not laugh at this. Okay. It's not an innocuous sentence. My whole personality is in that sentence. It's like condensed in this sentence. I'm in horrible agony. But I am definitely playing it off as super cool. That I totally did to myself. (laughs) Yeah, right? I just drank boiling water. (laughs) I never knew that would be a bad idea. (laughs) And not just burning your tongue, but like still committing to swallowing it and burning everything down on the way. You don't go backwards. (laughs) No, you don't. You know, you don't let anone know how much that hurts. Like all the skin yeah, sloughing yeah, off yeah, the yeah, inside yeah. of your all mouth of and it. throat. Yeah. All the way down to your fucking esophagus. esophagus. Yeah, I've got third degree burns in here. Toasty. Get that gavscon. <laughs> Minty chucky goodness. Sure that'll help. <laughs> <clears throat> Decided what? Harry raised an eyebrow, sipping at his own scalding tea. It burnt his tongue, and he quickly slid back down on the couch, silently cursing himself. Seriously, tell me something. Tell me something sad. Just leave it like that. Just leave it. We'll just laugh through it. And everyone will be like, "Why is that so funny? What's happening?" The rest of this is so serious. It's like the whole chapter is so serious. Yeah, just think about the rest of the chapter. Uh, that's not going to help. Uh, think about the dragon. That's definitely not going to help. <laughs> Fire breath. Same. It's fucking same. Fucking Watch me drink boiling water. I can take it. Yeah, I, I can do yeah. this. I part dragon. <laughs> Try and stop me. Fire's nothing. Yeah, right. Try the scalding tea. <laughs> Shit hurts. Scalding boiling water. I am a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> I t- Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me just flag it again. Mm-hmm. Should I just keep reading and then at the end just try and record this one sentence? Yeah. And then sure. I can insert it into somewhere? Yeah, definitely. We can do that. Let me try one more time. Okay. Give me that fucking flag. You're ruining my focus. Just put another one down. I can't do it. That you're ready for what comes next. (laughs) I'm just like (laughs) defeated by this one. We abandoned the figure. (laughs) That's enough. Decided what? Harry raised. An eyebrow, sipping at his own scalding tea. <laughs> Why can't I do this? Why are you so funny? Can I read it backwards? Himself cursing silently. Counter the on down. Back it set quickly and like he tongue his burnt it. Yes. And you interrupted. Don't summon demons in the kitchen. We talked about this. <laughs> I am the demon that gets summoned to the kitchen. Yes, that's accurate. <laughs> Okay. Decided what? Harry raised an eyebrow, sipping at his own... Sc- <laughs> you can do this. The word scalding. It's just too funny. It's just like really awakened something in me. Scalding? You're scalding Scalding. I do have a scalding personality.
Decided what? Said Harry. Eyebrow. No. I don't make fun of you in your process. And I make fun of you. Decided what? Harry raised an eyebrow. Decided what? Harry raised an eyebrow, sipping at his own scalding tea. It burnt his tongue and he quickly said it. It burnt his tongue and he quickly set it back down on the counter, silently cursing himself. I fucking did it.